Curious night involved the sky. The Atlantic billows roared. When such a destined wretch as I, washed headlong from on board, of friends, of hope, of all bereft, is floating home forever left. No braver chief could Albion boast than he with whom he went. Nor ever ship left Albion's coast with warmer wishes sent. He loved them both, but both in vain. Nor him beheld, nor her again. Not long beneath the whelming brine, expert to swim he lay, nor soon he felt his strength decline, of courage die away, but waged with death a lasting strife, supported by despair of life. He shouted, nor his friends had failed to check the vessel's course, but so the furious blast prevailed, that pitiless perforce, they left their outcast mate behind, and scudded still before the wind. Some succor yet they could afford, and, such as storms allow, the cask, the coop, the floated cord, delayed not to bestow. But he, they knew, nor ship, nor shore, whatever they gave, should visit more. Nor, cruel as it seemed, could he, their haste himself condemn, aware that flight in such a sea alone could rescue them, yet bitter felt it still to die, deserted, and his friends so nigh. He long survives, who lives an hour, in ocean self-upheld, and so long he, with unspent power, his destiny repelled, and ever, as the minutes flew, entreated help or cried adieu. At length his transient respite passed, his comrades, who before had heard his voice in every blast, could catch the sound no more, for then, by toil subdued, he drank the stifling wave, and then he sank. No poet wept him, but the page of narrative sincere that tells his name, his worth, his age, is wet with Anson's tear, and tears by bards or heroes shed alike immortalize the dead. I therefore purpose not, or dream, discanting on his fate, to give the melancholy theme a more enduring date, but misery still delights to trace its semblance in another's case. No voice divine the storm allayed, no light propitious shone, when, snatched from all effectual aid, we perished, each alone, but I beneath a rougher sea, and whelmed in deeper gulfs than he. William Cowper, The Castaway In Authority, the second novel of Vandermeer's Southern Reach trilogy, we learn that the biologist has returned, found lingering in an empty lot far from Area X, and so changed by the place that she insists she is no longer the biologist. She tells Control to call her Ghostbird, which was a nickname her husband gave her in the first novel. We also learn some more details about both the biologist, Lena, in the film, and the psychologist, Ventress, in the film, including these two passages, which has some reviewers screaming whitewashing. Quote, The biologist's hair had been long and dark brown, almost black, before they'd shaved it off. She had dark, thick eyebrows, green eyes, a slight, slightly off-center nose, broken once, falling on rocks, and high cheekbones that spoke to the strong Asian heritage on one side of her family. Her chapped lips were surprisingly full for such a thin frown. Even sitting down at the table, she somehow projected a sense of being physically strong, with a ridge of muscle where her neck met her shoulders. End quote. 
and in the director slash psychologist's office, Control finds, quote, A square etching of the lighthouse from the 1880s, a black and white photograph of two men and a girl framed by the lighthouse, a long, somewhat amateurish watercolor panorama showing miles of reeds broken only by a few isolated islands of dark trees, and a color photograph of the lighthouse beacon in all its glory. No real hints of the personal, no pictures of the director with her Native American mother, her white father, or with anyone who might matter in her life. End quote. But also, regarding the psychologist, who has so recently turned into an alien light in the film, quote, She had no siblings, and had grown up with her father in the Midwest. She had studied psychology at a state college, been a consultant for about five years. She had then applied for the Southern Reach through Central, where she had endured a grueling schedule designed to force her to prove herself over and over, and thus make up for her undistinguished career to date. The Southern Reach must have seemed a more attractive posting back then. She had a subscription to a table television guide, as well as a selection of culture and art magazines, judging not just from torn pages, but from subscription renewal forms. She had owed the dentist $72.12 at one point for a cleaning not covered by her insurance, and didn't care who knew it. A bowling alley outside of town was a frequent haunt. She got birthday cards from an aunt, but either wasn't sentimental about cards, or wasn't that close to the woman. She liked pork chops and shrimp with grits. She liked to dine alone but one receipt from the barbecue place had two dinner orders on it. Company? Perhaps. Like him, she sometimes ordered food to go so she'd have a lunch for the next day. The director was a big woman, with the kind of frame where you couldn't tell if she ran to fat or was muscular. End quote. And one final detail about the director, a.k.a. the psychologist, confirms that Garland never read the second book at all, or surely he would not have been able to resist including it. Quote, For in the stooped shoulders and the tilt of the director's head, they are approaching in the flesh. Control had finally realized that the girl in the photograph with the lighthouse keeper was the director as a child. There was a kind of slouch or lurch to the shoulders that, despite the different perspectives and the difference in years, was unmistakable if you were looking for it. Now that he could see it, he couldn't unsee it. There, hiding in plain sight in the photograph from the director's wall, was a photograph of the director as a child, taken by the SNS Brigade, standing side by side with Saul Evans, whose words decorated the wall of the topographical anomaly the tower, in living tissue. She had looked at that photo every day in her office. She had chosen to place that photograph there. She had chosen to live in Bleakersville, in a house full of heirlooms probably owned by someone on her mother's side of the family. Who would the Southern Reach had known? Or had this been another conspiracy of one, and the director had hidden that connection all on her own? Assuming he was right, she had been at the lighthouse right before the event. She had gotten out before the border came down. She knew the forgotten coast like she knew herself. There were things that she'd never had to put down on paper just because of who she was, where she came from. For all control knew, the director had been one of the last people to see Saul Evans alive. End quote. The photograph that the biologist found in the lighthouse in the first novel, a copy of which is inside the former director's office, reveals the director to have known the lighthouse keeper. How intimately I do not know because at the time of this recording, I have not yet read the third novel, Acceptance. Ventress, heading to the lighthouse, a familiar location where previously she knew its keeper, would be far too easily a thematic parallel to Lena heading there to find answers about Kane for Garland to have left it out. But on with the film, Minute 96. In the script, the being starts unfolding again, expanding, collapsing in on itself. And this time, during the transformation, we see fleeting glimpses of other bodies and faces. Shepard and Thornson, Peyton and Meyer, unknown team members from the previous expeditions. 
For a moment it is Raddick who stands in front of Lena. Then Dr. Ventress again. Then the radiating shapes have filled the chamber. They surround Lena. Then Lena herself is starting to unfold, unravel like fabric. Lena, no. Through this, she lifts her gun like a dream, which shatters the moment she squeezes the trigger and fires. Bullets slam into the being. The rounds have an amazing effect. Where they hit the body, a hole expands like a bullet into ballistic gelatin, but does not contract. Where they penetrate the body, they leave bright trails of emerald light, like sunlight through dust motes. For a moment, the being is poised in this state, hugely misshapen, speared with brilliant green. Then it expands, transforms, and resolves into a humanoid figure. Andrew Whitehurst, Visual Effects Supervisor. The hardest parts were how we got from the, the Mandelbulb into the humanoid. We knew we wanted to play a little bit with what the audience thought that they were looking at scale-wise, where we would travel into the Mandelbulb and then we would find the humanoid in some form within the Mandelbulb and then the Mandelbulb would open out into the room. So what you thought was a humanoid creature that's you know, sort of about the size of an action man actually is human size and you're then not sure about the, the scale of anything that you're looking at. Natalie Portman, Lena. The final sequence is, I think is going to be really um, beautiful looking. I mean, Alex has such an amazing um, eye, like artistic eye, and, and I think it's going to be really unique to have the whole movie sort of be outside in nature and all of a sudden it really becomes very black and white almost in the um, interior of the lighthouse. And the forms are so, they look like biological forms, like plant or animal or something, and, but also very alien, so I think it'll be quite beautiful. Andrew Whitehurst. And actually the chamber itself, I worked with art department to make that so that that is also a Mandelbulb. So I would sit down with Marco and Mish and Dennis and go, well, you know, how complicated do you want it? And they, you know, I'd sort of render something and go, too complicated, and I'd go make it with something like, yeah, kind of like that. And then I would be able to give them that geometry and then they were able to get the thing CNC machine. So the, actually the whole environment that that scene takes place in is a Mandelbulb. So you've got a Mandelbulb within a Mandelbulb. Mark Digby, production designer. The chamber set and the lighthouse set, people who've poked their heads in so far are quite amazed by that. It's the culmination of the journey, I think, in terms of um, of the drama, of the um, change. It's, 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 the, it's, where, it's where it's all started from, and we're backtracking to that. I think there's, there's great scale and detail of out-of-control growth and, um, you know, in the film, Lena's drop of blood expands, closer, splits into two, closer, two into four. Second 14, in reverse, Lena staring intently into the light of the mandelbulb, the lit tunnel exit behind her over her left shoulder. Second 18, close on blood cells, as one of many divides into two, into four, into eight, and others divide and camera pulls back through more and more of these same cells to reveal first the vague shape of a head formed from these cells, then the shoulders of a torso. Second 30, angle from the left, the mandelbulb out of frame to the left, and Lena takes a step back. Second 33, back to the previous angle, pulling back from this new form coalescing from so many cells. K-33, 
camera pulls back revealing a now silver tinted form in front of a darker version of the mandible, its edges like liquid flowing outward from this humanoid. The script describes it as sexless, featureless, having the arms, legs, head, and torso of a human, man or woman, but nothing else. No eyes, or mouth, or nose, or muscle form. The liquid remnants of the mantle bulb expand outward and fade into the various ridges of the chamber itself, leaving the humanoid there, facing Lena at edge of frame. The script says, Lena is transfixed by the sight. The figure turns to Lena, and we see its smooth facial area, internally lit, cilia covering the skin like undulating fur, shimmering gently. But in the film, the cilia are already gone, the cell division complete, at least at any level we can see. script says, a beat, between the woman and the humanoid. Lena's weapon is out. She has no more clips. She starts to run. The humanoid observes her run. Then it starts to follow her. The first step is slow. The second faster. The third is as fluid and powerful as Lena. It starts sprinting. In the film, second 44, angle on Lena, she raises her rifle. She screams. She fires. Second 46, angle from behind Lena and we see her bullets enter the humanoid. And as they exit, they take a piece of the humanoid with them. Attached, glowing tendrils that curve and absorb whatever damage and force those bullets should have inflicted. Lena stops firing. Second 51, reverse. Lena takes a breath. Another. Another. Second 53, angle from behind the humanoid. Those tendrils remain, but no longer glow. Lena lowers her gun in one hand, takes a step back. The humanoid takes a step forward, matching her timing. Lena takes another step, as does the humanoid, and time runs out for this minute. We spoke. What was it we said? Wordlessly watching, he waits by the window and wonders at the empty place inside. Annihilation. Annihilation.